This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 368. Thanks to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode. They provide the most detailed analysis of your biomarker data from your blood, your DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracking. And this Black Friday saved $200 on their Inside Tracker Ultimate Plan and also 25% off site wide. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. That's insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. This podcast is brought to you by AG1 by Athletic Greens. It's the ultimate daily all-in-one health drink with 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. And right now, Athletic Greens is offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Simply visit athleticgreens.com MTA and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Welcome to the MTA Podcast, where we help you unlock your running potential. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with Brad Stolberg, performance coach and author of the book, The Practice of Groundedness, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes your soul. And for some other content that will feed your soul, check out Academy Membership. We have a whole course on mindset, course number one that hundreds and hundreds of runners have gone through. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So Angie, just today we saw that the cutoff time for the Boston Marathon 2022, that is those that get in who qualified, uh, that number has kind of fluctuated and climbed in the last few years, all the way up to like four minutes one year. But the 2022 cutoff time is what? Zero minute, zero seconds. <laughs> That's right. They reported they had approximately 24,000 applicants submit qualifying times and that they're in the process of verifying that all those times are correct. But everyone who is verified will be accepted. Um, and I guess they're going to go back to a field size of around 30,000. Presumably, then you're going to get in. I presume, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So last weekend, you traveled to Richmond, Virginia to run the Richmond Half Marathon. How did that go for you? Yeah, that is a great event. I highly recommend it. They're also a sponsor of our podcast, Full Disclosure. But uh, I really appreciate Pete Woody and the folks at Sports Backers for the invitation. Sports Backers is the nonprofit that organizes the race, and they advocate for safe places to bike and walk in the city. And they support youth running, and they host events like the Marathon, the Half. They also have an 8K. It's a beautiful course, as advertised. Um, it starts in downtown Richmond, so it's really cool to run through downtown Richmond and then it kind of at least the half marathon course we went out through some neighborhoods and out around this park and back and the final half mile is downhill it's really exciting because boom you just run down this hill for good ways and then there's a finish area all the music and then uh, you cross this bridge and the post-race party is on an island in the James River and they gave out a slice of pizza and they had a beer truck they really give you a lot too. Um, after you finish, you get this bag that has a technical hat. They give you a blanket. They give you a long sleeve shirt. They give you a medal. Of course, this year, the medals will be shipped to all the runners because at the time of the race, the medals were still stuck on a container ship, uh, I think in Long Beach, California. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't run too fast. I kind of just plodded along. And 
I was able to stay at the Drury Hotel, which one of their newer locations, big, beautiful hotel, and they're also a sponsor of ours. They have now over 150 locations around the U.S. We've stayed in dozens and dozens, and uh, they never disappoint. That's right. Our kids always ask if we're staying at a Drury, whether we're traveling to a race or on vacation or whatever. <laughs> and actually, if you want to stay at the Drury, you can use our special link and get 15% off your stay. Just go to drurihotels.com forward slash MTA. Big thanks to them. So after the half marathon, I had some time to get a shower and rest. And then at four o'clock, I went to uh, the MTA meetup at a brew pub in Richmond called the Answer Pub. Had a big sign that says beer is the answer. (laughs) Um, But it was so nice to be able to meet some fellow runners. Big thanks to Sarah for uh, giving me the idea to do the meetup. So we got to meet Sarah and Nick. Logan, Lori, Kathleen, Marshall, Allison, Athena, and Greg. Wonderful people, had a great time. And I sat next to Lori, and and, and she had just finished the marathon that day. It was her first marathon, and she shared her story that uh, she ran her first mile last year after signing up for the Corona Lisa 100-mile challenge. Wow, that's so fantastic. Yeah, I know. just blows me away. Later, she posted in our group, she said, This morning... I woke up as a marathoner. I ran the Richmond Marathon yesterday and finished smiling with a time of 4.2402. Last year, I was slowly walk running my way through the 100-mile Corona Lisa Challenge. And then she says, after the race, I was able to stop by the meetup and thank Trevor in person, as well as meet some other social distancing run members. I have a local running community now, but this group will always be where it started for me. And then she says, light feet, strong legs, tough mind, open heart, keep moving forward. Love it. Good stuff. We always love to read shout outs. So Angie has some other messages from people with uh, tough minds and open hearts. This is a note from Jimmy. He says, I got a new PR and wasn't really trying at the St. Pete Run Fest half marathon with a time of one hour, 47 minutes and 28 seconds. The training is paying off thanks to MTA coach Antonio. And I listened to the MTA podcast the entire race. (laughs) Always happy to hear about uh, the training paying off. That's right. This comes from Madison, an MTA member. She says, I ran my first marathon yesterday at the Charlotte Marathon. I was aiming to run it under four hours, and I finished in three hours and 49 minutes. My dad also ran it and finished in 322. It was an awesome experience and a great celebration of all the training and hard work from the past few months. Seeing all the people cheering felt so special, and I even cried a bit around mile 18 because I just couldn't believe that I was really doing it. Mm. I felt solid until the very end and walked up a couple of hills in the last two miles. It took a lot of mental strength to pick up the pace, but picturing the finish line got me there. Finding the MTA podcast a few months ago felt like such a gift. I learned so much and had many questions answered. I'm looking forward to a little break, but I'm excited for my next big race. And that comes from Madison. Awesome. Well, thank you, Madison, for sharing that. Congrats on your first marathon accomplished in 349. That's an awesome time. And how about her dad running 322? That guy's gifted. Yeah, he's smoking fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in this episode, we speak with Brad Stolberg, author of the book Groundedness. He's a performance coach who works with executives, entrepreneurs, and athletes to help improve their well-being. What else can we tell people about Brad Stolberg? He's an avid outdoor enthusiast. Uh, He loves to read and has a strength training practice, as you'll hear about on this episode. Yeah, the whole idea of having a practice, uh, especially looking at your running as a running practice, will unpack what that means. I think it's a really helpful framework. He also talks about the importance of being present, acceptance, vulnerability, and uh, other aspects of 
living a grounded life, stuff that'll help you as a runner and just in everyday life. So here is our conversation with Brad Stolberg. All right, we're on the podcast now with Brad Stolberg. Brad, welcome back to the MTA podcast. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Angie. Good to be back. I forgot to ask, where do you live? I live in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay, cool. So we're in the same time zone. <laughs> you guys are Pennsylvania, is that right? Yeah, Pennsylvania. Yeah, well, we thoroughly enjoyed reading The Practice of Groundedness, uh, a transformative path to success that feeds, not crushes, your soul. So many things crush our souls these days that it's good to have uh, a path out of that. Uh, we wanted to, I guess, start with one thing that does lead to soul crushing is this idea of heroic individualism. And I don't think I was familiar with that term prior to reading this book. So can you tell us what is heroic individualism? Heroic individualism is this game of constant one-upsmanship against yourself and others where measurable achievement is the dominant arbiter of success. So it used to be that keeping up with the Joneses was very physical and it related to the people in your neighborhood. And now keeping up with the Joneses is just such a part of our culture in all facets of life. Your marathon training, your marathon time, your job, your partner, um, the number of followers you have on social media, and if more and more of life becomes almost like a marketing and branding exercise, mm. then more and more of life starts to feel like work. And if we are just working all the time, then of course, we're going to be anxious, overwhelmed, exhausted. Most recently, I've been thinking as a part of this heroic individualism is an obsession with various fitness trackers that help you so-called quote unquote optimize and I know some people who take their sleep tracking so seriously that even sleeping becomes work because now <laughs> sleeping is something that they're scared to fail at. So you actually put yourself to work 24 hours a day and then it's no wonder that you start to feel pretty overwhelmed. Yeah, it's not just this competition with ourselves either. It's because of social media and the availability of access to people all around the world. Suddenly, we're informally competing against people that we don't even know and probably will never know in person. Yeah, it's, you know, Instagram, look how good my, you know, physical person looks. Uh, Twitter, look how many followers I have. Facebook, look how good my marathon time is. Zillow, look at all these houses that I wish I could live in. I mean, it's just, it goes forever and ever and ever. Angie just elbowed me because I was looking at real estate yesterday. Yeah, my <laughs> wife does that too. It, um, it's just like, it, it, it's in the water. I, I write in the book, it's, we're swimming in this water. And I think that a large part of it is just the consumer nature where the message is constantly, if you only get this, then you'll be fulfilled. So if you only get this watch, this car, and that's really um, spread to so many areas of our life, and it just it gets exhausting. And you mentioned a couple of the symptoms associated with this heroic individualism. Talk about some more of them, because I think people maybe will be able to recognize it in their own life like I did. Mm, yeah. So I think the the main one for me is 
both the main one that I experienced and the main one that I saw in researching and reporting the book and in my own coaching practice is this feeling like all you want is a break, but then when you try to take a break, you feel like super restless and you don't know what to do with yourself. So it's like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You're just kind of stuck. Um, feelings of low-level anxiety, feeling like you are always too busy, but then again, when there's open space, not knowing what to do with yourself. Uh, struggling to sit still without reaching for your phone, finding it challenging to go do something in the real world without documenting it to then share later. Um, <laughs> these are all pretty common. It is amazing how hard it is to go anywhere or do anything without my phone. You know, speaking from personal experience here, it almost feels like I'm naked. <laughs> like if I leave the house without a phone. Yeah. Like how do we ever function without this? <laughs> Well, I think that generally what tends to happen is there'll be a small period of anxiety when you try to leave the house without the phone. And if you can just get through that and expect that for it to feel worse before it feels better, then most people experience a lot of openness and freedom. Um, and this can be as little as like going for a hike or a run without your phone, going to the grocery store without your phone, just putting these times and activities in our day where we just have to be with ourselves and what's physically in the world around us. Again, at first causes most people to feel anxious because a phone is like an adult pacifier. Like when you need something <laughs> to soothe yourself, you reach for your phone. But much like a child, once that pacifier is plugged and you kind of learn how to be with yourself, ultimately you feel a lot better. So now I'm curious, I know the answer to this, but for our listeners, what led you to write this book? Yeah, I think a few things. Um, the first is seeing all of these themes just ubiquitously out there and not in people that are necessarily like broken or underperformers, but in just everyone, people that are at the top of the game, people that are struggling really like heroic individualism being the default kind of temperament of our time, again, because it's the water that we swim in. Mm -hmm. um, and then my own experience, there's another portion of the book that really deals with how I got obsessive compulsive disorder pretty starkly shortly after my first book was released. And for a good few months, was like quite sick with that. And that helped me to step back once I was out of the woods and just evaluate my own life and say, what does it look like if this is like a chance to kind of rebuild a foundation for mental health and strength? What would that foundation look like? So my own experience coupled with this ubiquitous sense of dis-ease, unsettledness, and then wearing my writing hat, which is always, let me go explore this. Let me try to find some patterns um, that could be a better way of doing things. I know when I was reading the book, it was just like kind of turning the light bulb on to things that I've been feeling for a long time. I know about six years ago, just dealing with some anxiety and depression and that feeling of just being overwhelmed that I started kind of a meditation journey and started to try to get to a more mindful place. Um, and so just this whole concept of groundedness, I think really puts it in a perfect nutshell of what a lot of us are looking for. Um, so talk about what groundedness is. Mm. So I like to use the metaphor of a mountain groundedness because it functions on, on two different levels. So the first level is most people, when they see a big, beautiful mountain, they look at the peak. And perhaps if the mountain is really steep and prominent, they'll also admire the mountain slope. 
But very rarely do people that come across a big mountain take stock of its base. Yet it's a base of the mountain that is what allows the mountain to stand during all kinds of weather. So without that base, without that solid foundation, there is no sustainability. There is no slope. There is no peak over time and certainly not during storms. And we're the same way. We tend to focus on the bright and shiny objects and being at our peak. And when everything's clicking for short periods of time, that's okay. But eventually, when the weather changes, if our base isn't solid, then like a mountain, we also are at risk of, of, of crumbling. We become fragile. And the second level that the mountain works on is a metaphor for groundedness is if you imagine two people trying to climb a mountain and both really want to reach the top. And the first person is constantly thinking about the selfies that they're going to take when they get there, how they're going to tell all their friends, colleagues, and families that they made it, how once they get to the top, then they'll be able to sleep at night because they'll be able to say for the rest of their life that they hit the peak of this mountain and so on and so forth. And then you have another climber that equally is bad wants to get to the top, but that climber is really present where they are along the way. They're focused on taking consistent small steps, and they're even able to enjoy the view from the side of the mountain. Now, both of these climbers might have the same chance of getting to the top, but it's the second climber that I take my money on any day having a more sustainable climbing career because that climber is grounded as they go. And... Obviously, this is true for literal mountain climbers, but it's true for all the figurative mountains that we climb in our lives. So it's both about the base and then also about giving you a way to be more durable and where you are while you strive for big goals. And how does the arrival fallacy play into all of that? I mean, I was kind of thinking in your illustration there, that first climber maybe has that arrival fallacy, like I'm going to get for to the sure. top and everything's going to be amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So the arrival fallacy is well documented in the behavioral science research that we trick ourselves into thinking, if I only get this and insert this, this romantic partner, this car, this job promotion, this marathon time, you name it, then I'll be content, fulfilled, happy. And it's a fallacy because that is not a path to fulfillment or contentment. What ends up happening is you get the thing and then maybe you feel really good for a short period of time and then you're back to striving, you're back to feeling empty. So this notion that fulfillment, contentment is something that's out in front of us and that's something that we need to achieve our way to is just utter bullshit. And contentment is something that you have to create right now. Now, it's not to say that you shouldn't set big goals and ambitions and strive, but if you're doing it because you think it's going to get you fulfilled once you accomplish the thing, then you're in for a rude awakening versus if you do it because the path, the process, the striving itself is fulfilling and you can ground yourself in that process, then going after big goals is one of the best things there is. You learn about yourself, you meet people along the way, you learn how to surf waves of ups and downs, but it's so different than having a mindset that's all about just getting to some other place because at the risk of sounding all woo-woo, like the only place that you are is where you are. <laughs> yeah. That really resonated with me. I think in the book, one statement that you made, I think you said, the path is the goal. The goal is the path. I like yeah, chewing it. on that one ever since I read it. <laughs> it that's, the, that's the TLDR, right? That's what the kids say these days. Too long, didn't read. <laughs> the context for that is once you determine like the big projects and activities in your life, then yeah, the only goal is staying on the path. 
And if you stay on the path, then you're accomplishing the goal because no one is going to remember whether you ran 302 or 259 or 401 or 359, or if you're really good, 220 or 224. Um, most people don't sit there on their deathbed being like, I got under that arbitrary round number. Um, <laughs> but what they remember is, again, what they learned about themselves along the way, the relationships that they made, the gratification that actually doing the activities that fulfill them provided. And that's what I mean by just stay on the path. Now, listen, if you're a professional at something and you're being paid based on results, yes, of course, results matter, but I still don't think they should ever be the be all end all because the paradox is when they become the be all end all, you end up performing worse because you just put all this external pressure on yourself. Brad, you pull together so many great strands from different thinkers, from scientific studies to medieval mystics and Buddhist thought, and all this is woven through the book. It makes me curious, what is your background? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you first off recognize that. So thank you. It's, it's kind of my MO, and it's something that I really, I take pride in. And there are a few things that I take pride in, but this is one, that for anything to make it into one of my books, um, I hold it up to what I call a three-legged stool. So one leg is modern science and empirical research. One leg is ancient wisdom and patterns in history. And then the third leg is real world rubber meets the road practice. Yeah. Um, so I think that if something has all those three legs, then it's probably true. Um, well, I and even then, just probably true, right? It's very hard to say something is 100% certainly true, but we're trying to get as close to the truth as possible. So what's my background? I mean, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> You learned all this in North Carolina. <laughs> False. I've only been in North Carolina for a year and a half. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um, in high school, I was just an athlete and all I cared about were sports. Mm -hmm. um, I did fine in school, but it was in service of like sports and I wasn't going to be good enough to go like to a big school and play on a scholarship. So the motivation for getting good grades was to like get recruited by Ivy League schools and that sort of thing. So my intellectual interest started in in undergraduate school. Um, I was very fortunate that I was in a program that was interdisciplinary. So okay. this kind of interdisciplinary thinking was instilled in me really as I was forming like my intellectual identity. And then I studied public health in graduate school, but was really struck by how narrow most definitions of health are. And this is like 10, 15 years ago. So back then, Hmm. predominantly physical health, maybe some mental health, but like thoughts of like well-being and social health, spiritual health, they weren't really on the map. And then since then, been coaching individuals uh, across disciplines on the things that I write about and then writing. And that's hmm. the the short version, you know, mixed with millions of failures and rejections and lucky breaks. And it sounds like uh, a career of running too. And I know you've done some marathons, but... I, I once was a runner. Isn't that a good book? You can call me John L. Parker. I'm Quentin Cassidy. So I, um, I ran for about 10 years and my own running was very much an example of what I now call heroic individualism. So hmm. I liked running, but I was constantly fighting against my genetics and just my body. I desperately wanted to go sub three for the marathon and after a 301 attempt with a first child on the way a few years ago, I said, screw this, I'm mm. done. <laughs> um, I also have something called chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So a calf issue that also kind of got in the way. So it's long story short, went back to my roots. And then for the last three and a half, three years have been strength training as my physical practice. 
but I'm surrounded by runners. I still get a pass into the running community. My wife's a runner. <laughs> my best friends are runners. Some of my clients are runners. You know, just a second ago, you mentioned you have a strength training practice. And I know in the book, you talk about viewing exercise as a practice. So we could say that we have a running practice. Uh, what's the benefit of looking at it that way? Like I have a running practice. Right. So, you know, as a writer, I obviously think that language matters and, and language shapes how we think. So let's start by setting that context. Like whether you call it a practice or not doesn't actually change anything unless like you really buy into the word. And um, to me, a practice is something that you care deeply about, that you pay close attention to, that you are committed to for the long haul, and that you change and it changes as you do it over time. And I think that it can be very helpful, particularly for physical activity, to consider it not as exercise, not as hobby, but as a practice, because then it really elevates it to something that is more than just what you do a couple times a week, but to a part of your identity, to something that you learn from, to some people is like a spiritual way to like really feel grounded. Mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell, who is the world's most expert on ancient mythology and spirituality, he wrote a lot about peak experiences or like those times that you become one with the universe and studied all these ancient wisdom traditions. And before he died, he was doing an interview on PBS with Bill Moyer. And Bill Moyer asked him, like, has he ever had a peak experience? And he's like, yeah, I'm fortunate to have had many. And everyone, myself included, thought he was going to talk about, you know, sitting with some guru in India or whatever. And he said that all my peak experiences were running 800s on the track. Wow. <laughs> so I think when you have that mindset, though, of like physical, like it's, it's what our human species evolved to do. It's what we were made to do. And yeah, I think elevating it from just a hobby or something you do to a practice puts it in a good perspective for lots of people. And it kind of makes room for failure too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's like the goal is the path and the path is the goal. Like if, if you're going to be doing this for the long haul, great. And I would even suggest that, you know, runners, and I don't care if you're elite, 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 Meb Kaflesky, Shalane Flanagan level, or brand new trying to run your first 5K from the couch, I think using physical practice is really healthy because that way your identity doesn't get too connected to being a runner. And if you become injured or you feel like you want to try something new, then it is more easy to make that shift. And it's not just runners. Like I, I, I said, you know, strength training is my physical practice. So something I'll always have in life as a physical practice, for sure, it won't always be strength training um, because eventually I'll want to transition to something else. I'll age, I'll get injured, something will happen. Yeah, I think that's a super important concept because like you said, sometimes there are periods of time when you can't do your chosen sport or you're injured. And then if you're not careful, everything can fall to pieces and you realize like how much of your mental health and your identity you were putting into that. Yes, 100%. Um, and I hate the word exercise because talk about something that just like for better or worse has taken on such a means to an end feel. Like, oh, I'll mm. exercise so I can eat. I'll exercise so I can live longer versus like the joy of movement and developing a practice. And so I think for most people that have this mindset, going from a 3.30 marathon to a 3.15 marathon is not nearly as gratifying is as you improve learning what it feels like to get close to your line without crossing it. Or in strength training, like going from a 350 deadlift to a 450 pound deadlift, you're not like getting off on the fact that you lift that much more weight. It's that like you realize that strength is a skill and it's more than just like the size of your muscles, but it's timing. 
And I think like when you have a practice mindset, it opens you up to explore more of that nuance that keeps you grounded as you strive, like we talked about it, and is so much more fulfilling than just chasing numbers. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation thus far. We'd like to take a quick moment and thank Inside Tracker. They are having a Black Friday sale where you can save $200 on their ultimate plan. So get your blood work done and get all kinds of data to show you what's going on inside your body. You can find it at insidetracker.com forward slash MTA. Angie, what else can we tell people about Inside Tracker? It's really just a great reminder that no people achieve optimal health the same way. And once Inside Tracker analyzes all your data, they will provide personalized recommendations on what you can do to help take your health to the next level. Yeah, so especially if you haven't had your blood tested in a while or you know a special somebody in your life that would appreciate this gift, uh, check them out, InsideTracker.com to get $200 off the Ultimate Plan during their Black Friday sale and also 25% off their whole site, everything they offer, InsideTracker.com forward slash MTA. And thanks also to Athletic Greens for sponsoring the podcast. They are the makers of AG1, and it's called AG1 because it's only one scoop per day, and you get 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients. You don't need a ton of pill bottles around and take a 1,000 supplements. You get in one scoop a multi-mineral, a probiotic, a green superfood blend. It contains adaptogens, antioxidants, enzymes, and all kinds of good stuff. And like Trevor mentioned, it tastes really good. A lot of green drinks out there, you really have to choke down. But Yeah, remember the barley green days, Angie? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were taking like dry barley green with water. But with AG1, I don't have to force my kids to take it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's literally the first thing that I reach for in the morning to start my day off. And you can get five free travel packs and a one-year supply of vitamin D. With your first purchase, just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. See why we love it? Athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. So we've talked a bit about your sixth principle, which is movement. Maybe we should go back to number one and yeah. talk about each of them so people can kind of like look at the foundation that you were talking about, or that mountain. Um, the first one you talk about is acceptance. Kind of dive into that a little bit, if you would. For sure. So acceptance means being able to take stock of a situation and see it clearly for what it is. And as a result, be empowered to take wise and productive action. That sounds so simple and second nature, but very often we tend to see things as we want them to be, not as they are. And this is about learning to see things as they are. Yeah. Being at peace with reality, I think it's really tough. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it's funny you say peace. I think peace enough with reality because mm -hmm. often people hear, hear acceptance and they think like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to like phone it in. Give up. And Right. Exactly. And acceptance is not passive resignation or giving up. It is seeing things as they are and accepting them and then doing something about it. And I think often we skip the seeing things as they are and accepting it part and just go to do something about it. And that's when we get caught up in like this manic, frantic, like cycle of doing without maybe working on the thing that we actually need to be working on. Yeah, I think that's there's a lot there because I tend to find myself like attaching to certain goals too strongly yeah. instead of like having kind of the open hand concept, like what is not supposed to be for me will leave and what is supposed to come to me will come. Not that yeah. I don't have to work for it or put in any effort. You know, we tend to attach to certain things so strongly that we don't allow change to happen. And, you know, we're just fighting against ourselves. So this, this happens for runners all the time as it relates to injury or life change. 
So injury, self-explanatory, life change could be marriage, moving, pregnancy, new child. Runners tend to like having a schedule and sticking to it and executing on their training. And as a result, it is not uncommon to have situations where you are literally hobbling out of your door down your stairs because it hurts too much to walk down the steps to then go do a workout. And that is an example of not accepting reality. And one of the ways to help foster the kind of clear seeing that acceptance requires is to create some space between yourself and your situation. And one way to do it that I think is so powerful for athletes is to imagine that a close friend or a training partner was in the exact same situation as you. What advice would you give that friend? So instead of you, Trevor, hobbling down the steps to go do your workout with a high hamstring strain, you would say- That's exactly what Angie, that sounds like her actually. Let's flip it. Angie hobbling down the steps to do the workout with a high hamstring strain. Imagine that an athlete that you've worked with or a friend or a training partner is doing that and you could zoom in and watch them. What would you say? Yeah, you would say, are you okay? You know, are you sure you should be doing that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And if they were truly hobbling, what would you say? Your body's trying to tell you that you need to rest. Listen to your body. Right. (laughs) And that's then the advice that you have to take. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I see a friend doing that and I'm like, come on, like take three days off now so you don't have to take three months off later. Mm -hmm. But when it's you and you're looking at your training plan and you got those 800s, you can do all kinds of self-justification to a point where it truly hurts to walk, but you're going to go run flat out. Mm -hmm. And just creating some space between yourself and the thing is really helpful. And researchers call this self-distancing. And one way to do it is to pretend that a friend or a training partner is in the same situation. So uh, principle number two in the book is be present so you can own your attention and energy. This is about all the constant stimulus and distraction that's bombarding us 24-7 and how exhausting that is, how our brains did not evolve to have this level of input and how we in the 21st century really have to actively work to create times and places where we can be distraction free. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not the default option, almost never. So it is about figuring out what are the activities that you want to be fully present for, and then how can you create circumstances that help facilitate that. I'm a big believer in getting upstream of like the moment itself. So you can do like 15 years of deep Vipassana or Zen meditation training, and maybe you'll be present in a crazy setting, or you can try to change the setting to make it less crazy. Um, There's a reason that those meditation masters are training in a monastery, and it's because there is no novelty and distraction in the monastery. So to think that we can just meditate for 10 minutes a day and then be present is kind of funny when you step back and think (laughs) about it like that. So what does this mean in the real world? It means, well, when do you want to do a run and leave your phone behind? When do you want to have dinner with your family or your partner and leave your phone behind? When do you want to pick up a hardcover book instead of an e-reader because you know on the e-reader you'll get distracted and click links? When do you want to go into your bedroom to sleep and not bring a device in there because you know that you'll get caught scrolling and it will ultimately keep you up? So it's really probably the simplest practice, but also the hardest, which is just identifying the, the things in your life that you want to be present for and then figuring out how to not bring all the distractions along the way. 
Now, I talked a lot about external distractions. There could still be some internal distractions, which is your thinking mind going crazy. So you mm-hmm. might not have your phone on you, but your mind might be, oh my God, all the emails you're falling behind on, all the text messages, all the calls, what happens yep. if something happens to the kid, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, in, in there, it's really just learning to not fight any of that and just be like, all right, brain, like I see you, there you are, you know, same track. And if you can pay attention to that track and label it without getting caught up into it and just do that repetitively, then it gets a lot easier because your brain stops throwing that at you because it just basically gets boring. And I think that's the value of like a a more layperson amateur meditation practice is if you sit with 20 minutes for your eyes closed, you get really, really good at watching your brain spew up all kinds of stuff. And if you do that for a year or two years or three years or a decade, your brain doesn't stop spewing up the stuff, but you don't have to get involved in it. You can just kind of let it be there. And um, you see how impermanent it is and how quickly your brain can go from like reconsidering your marriage to figuring out what you want on top of your pizza to like worrying if you lock the door. And again, you watch that happen enough and you realize like, wow, I don't have to take all thoughts very seriously. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Not being overly invested in the thoughts. There's always going to be some kind of thought which range hugely in the matter of importance, um, but they're all just thoughts at the end of the day. And you know, you don't have to choose to engage with them, just acknowledging them. And I think that's the real value of a meditation practice is just that it's empowering you to see your identity is separate from your thoughts and feelings, and then let your identity choose which thoughts and feelings to engage with. It sounds a lot easier than it is. It requires a lot of practice to get better at, but you can. I mean, I'm an example. I OCD like is like the clinical definition of getting too caught up in thoughts and feelings. And such a huge part of my recovery um, was just hours and hours and hours of meditation and just learning to have whatever thoughts and feelings I was going to have and separate from them and not necessarily get caught up in them. So let's move on to principle number three. It's patience. Yeah, you say be patient and you'll get there faster. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're the Marathon Training Academy. Let's use a marathon. Yeah. I think it's the perfect metaphor. So whatever your pace is for a marathon, you could run the first couple miles faster. So if you're a 640 marathoner, you could easily go out at 615. You could cover those first six miles really fast, feeling pretty good. Then mile 23 rolls around and you might not be feeling so hot. And that's how all the big projects in life work. We get Mm -hmm. so caught up in going at the gate way too fast and rushing and trying to hack our way to success and pulling all-nighters and push, push, pushing, and then we burn out. And... It is no different than a novice marathon runner going out too fast that you could relate that to marriages, to parenting, to starting a business, to zooming out and looking at the training progression as a whole. I actually have a funny recent story from it. So I'm sure there's all kinds of selection bias and the people that are willing to, to work with me and tolerate me. But <laughs> my current, my, my strength coach, who I've been working with really since I got serious about this, which is only a year and a half ago. I've been working really hard on the timing of my squat and I did like a 300 pound squat with just like perfect timing. And it looks like a ton of freaking weight on the barbell. And, you know, he has me video it to send it to him for feedback. And he just responded, congratulations, you've moved from novice to beginner. (laughs) And I just love it because like, that's the mindset, you know? And I don't even think he means like, you're going to put on 300 more pounds. I think he means like, you've been doing it for a year and a half. Like you now understand what a good squat's supposed to feel like. 
that is just the beginning. And um, it gets back to thinking of important activities as a practice, as you mentioned earlier, Trevor, that really opens you up to be patient and to view things over the long haul. So running, it's super easy to get bogged down and obsessed with a particular workout or a particular training cycle or a particular build for a race or a particular year, when in fact, most runners that have really good careers and good based on how they themselves would report it, those are long careers. I mean, one of my close friends, Shalane Flanagan, who I mean, everyone that listens to this podcast knows, she had all her best performances towards the very end. And if she wouldn't have been patient, those would not have happened. Hmm. And look at her now. She's still crushing it. <laughs> That's right. I, Gosh, she needs to she needs to do that give advice to a friend thing about her you know <laughs> six marathons with a one and a half year old and new book coming out project <laughs> just goes to show that I, I I can reach a lot of people but I can't reach them all. <laughs> okay, so principle number four in the book is embrace vulnerability to develop genuine strength and confidence. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? It means that if you lie to yourself and you tell yourself that you are stronger than you really are, or you try to like hide concerns, fears, then eventually those things come up and they butt you in the ass. So for a runner, this could be deep down inside knowing that the training didn't go as you planned, but your conscious mind can trick you out of that. So you go out and you run 645 instead of seven minute pace and you blow up at the end of the race. It can mean for a runner in a taper, being vulnerable enough to trust that the training's going to sink in and not going out a week before your race and doing a hard workout to prove to yourself that you're fit. And then you leave the race in that hard workout. That's such a common goal. And I relate that to vulnerability because a good taper is really vulnerable. You've done all this training and now depending on the event in your, your coach and your program for anywhere between a week all the way up to three weeks, you're really not doing much. And it takes a lot of guts and vulnerability to trust that you're going to be able to run a really good race, even though you haven't really done much for the last three weeks. So what do runners do? They can't accept that vulnerability. So they go out and they run a really hard workout when their coach doesn't tell them to. They have a great workout. So they're like, yeah, I'm fit. I proved to myself I'm fit. And then they wonder why they feel sluggish on race morning. Yeah, that's that's a great example. That happens a lot. So would you say that how vulnerability relates to authenticity? I mean, are they kind of go hand in hand maybe? I think so. I think particularly in social situations. I, in the book, cite the work of a sociologist from the mid-1900s named Irving Goffman, who I, I love his work because it's so simple, um, yet so true. He talks about how we all have front stage selves and backstage selves. So our front stage selves are the selves that we bring to social interactions. And in this day and age, that absolutely includes the internet and social media. <laughs> and our backstage selves are who we really are. And what Goffman said is that the more space there is between your front stage self and your backstage self, the more cognitive dissonance and distress you feel. Mm -hmm. So his whole theory for integration and well-being and authenticity was do what you can to minimize the space between backstage and front stage selves. Now, there will always be some space because we're contextual creatures. We are different socially than we are alone, but the less space there is, the better. One of my telltale signs of bullshit in the health and fitness world is when someone comes across as like a guru that has everything figured out and then like they're selling the supplement or special program that allows them to have everything figured out 
Um, to me, that's someone that is probably completely making it up versus someone that has the vulnerability to say like, hey, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's where I've been good in the past. Here's where I haven't. And a lot of this is luck because all the evidence shows that that's the truth. Yeah, it's like Angie talking about her hamstring issues on recent episodes. Yeah, I think there can be kind of be that dichotomy between, you know, trying to do all the things that, you know, um, are important to be a strong, healthy, injury-free runner, but also the fact that our bodies are vulnerable, especially as we get older and they don't recover as more, as quickly. So there is that space between um, that can sometimes be hard for people because, you know, we want to believe like if I'm doing everything quote unquote right, then mm. I'm going to get X, Y, Z results and I'm not going to struggle along the way. And that's just not accurate. And that gets back to practice and heroic individualism and just groundedness as a whole, which is you only have that thought if you're so caught up on getting X, Y, Z. So there's a difference between like needing to get X, Y, Z and wanting to get X, Y, Z. And I think wanting is a lot healthier than needing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, And it's going to happen to any runner because you're going to get older and like it is indisputable regardless of what the biohackers say, like you will hit an age where performance starts to suffer and there is no right way to deal with that. Mm-hmm. It, for some, they can move on to running slower and competing in their age group. Others have to quit the sport altogether and take up something new. All of that is fine. What's not fine is fighting against the process, trying to get faster when your body says like those matches have been burned and then ending up miserable and injured all the time. Or what we see a lot on the men's side is doping. Like so many amateur triathletes, are using performance enhancing drugs because they're hitting that age wow. where they start to get slower and they can't accept it and they're not even getting paid. It's it's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's a thing in triathlon. I don't know if it's as much of a thing in, in running, but yeah, like a lot of lack of vulnerability and acceptance around aging. And that it being so invested in a result, I, you know, kind of brings to mind people who cheat in races. It's like, yes. what is the point? You're, you're not an elite but those athlete. people For those people, running is not a practice. Right. <laughs> for the dopers in triathlon, it's not a practice. It's something that they do so they can tell their colleagues, look how fast I went. Mm-hmm. Or they can brag about their time or their results. Because if it's a practice, like some of the most joyful stuff can come on the decline. Because like you, you don't have the pressure. Imagine yeah. how nice it would be to just accept my best marathons behind me. Now I'm going to like learn more about myself as I age and how to run pain free or how to run more consistently. A great example of this is my friend, Ambie Burfoot, who won the Boston Marathon in 1968 and just ran Boston this year as like an 83 year old or something, or maybe wow. I don't know exactly how old Ambie mm-hmm. is, 79. And I'm in an email group with him, and he said that I think these days I could be called an old geezer, and I'm as excited as ever to run. <laughs> what a graceful way to like go from being the Boston Marathon American champion to still participating in the sport. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is all really good stuff. We're almost to the end of the six principles. Principle number five is build deep community. Uh, how does deep community help us with the practice of groundedness? So community is everything. We are just social creatures and social beings. And the more that we can do things that we care about with others, the easier it is to let go of heroic individualism and results and treat things as a practice. Part and parcel with practice is a community of practice. So you often hear that in physicians or in woodworkers. Very rarely do they enter practice alone. They're in a community of practice. And that's like where all the fulfillment and granularity and texture of the journey is 
because you're getting to share it with other people. A, a big part of that chapter of the book was just encouraging people to prioritize people over productivity. Because what ends up happening is we get so caught up in heroic individualism and wanting to be efficient and quote unquote productive that community gets cannibalized because community is inherently inefficient. So let's talk about this for runners. The most efficient way for your training and for your life to run is to run by yourself because you can run right out your door. You don't have to schedule with anyone. That takes time. You don't have to wait for, you know, Mary, who's always five minutes late to the group run. You don't have to go slower for Jane, who like is slower. You don't have to try to keep up with Shalane, who's always faster. So I'm just going to run exactly when I feel like it, exactly when it fits into my day at my exact prescribed paces. And if you train like that, you're training alone for the rest of your life. And it is such a hard thing for people to get over that what you give up in scheduling and waiting for the late straggler and not running your exact pace, you gain in the bonds and the fun and the joy that you have in the sport. So I tell the story I mentioned earlier, Shalane Flanagan, I tell the story of Shalane in this chapter because her breakthrough towards the end of her career coincided with her starting to train with a group instead of training individually. And when she started to train with that group, she was very anxious about all those things at that level of performance, more so around like, well, I can't, I might not be able to run like to the exact second, my repeats. And her coach, Jerry Schumacher said like, don't worry as much about that. It'll be close enough, but like what you're going to get out of doing this in a community at this stage of your career, where you've been running hundred plus mile weeks for a decade is going to be worth every penny that you give up in inefficiency. And sure enough, Shalane enjoyed her group training experience much more than training alone. She competed at the best of her career and the women that she trained with all got better. So I think of that as just, again, like choosing people and community over efficiency and efficiency broadly, not just time, but also like running the exact pace, doing the exact workout. There are, of course, exceptions, but try to think about the benefits of community when you decide how much time and how much you're willing to give up to create it. Awesome. And of course, in the final principle, which we've kind of touched on, it's about moving your body. That helps ground your mind. And it was fun to read that chapter and, and be reminded of all the benefits of walking and a physical movement on our mental health and just everything. It is. It's mental health, spiritual health, social health, obviously physical health. I think as more time for more people is spent living their life online, the more valuable doing real things in the world is going to be. Mm -hmm. It's really nourishing in a world where everything is virtual and digital and subjective and political. And he said, she said to go deadlift a bunch of weight and you either get the bar above your knees and you lock out or you don't. It's talking with my collaborative partner, Steve Magnus, like whether it's Andrew Cuomo or Elizabeth Holmes from Thanos or like Donald Trump, none of these fools are deadlifting because <laughs> if they were deadlifting or running a fast mile, they'd be so much more humble. They wouldn't think that they're invincible. Because oh, doing, moving your body, doing real things teaches you that you're not invincible and it does it in such a visceral way that you can't run away from it. Mm. So run those fast miles, keep deadlifting, um, but doing real things. And it does, you know, there are other ways to get at it. Like you could woodwork, but even that is physical. You could garden, but I include that in physical practice. It's mm -hmm. like, there's something so humbling about doing stuff where your body and your ability to use it is your only resource and you either succeed or fail. 
And I loved how you talked about building into your day, like even little bits count. You know, if you're a runner and you're training for something, then you're going to, you know, have that set up in your week. But also just during your day, like getting up from your desk or whatever you're doing and moving around. Yeah. When you wrote, always keep a water bottle nearby, immediately my brain's like, okay, he's just going to talk about how good and healthy it is for us to drink water. (laughs) But no, you said (laughs) you'll drink more which means you'll need to pee more, which means you'll get up and move in order to go to the bathroom. Like, I've never thought of it that way. How about that? I'm quoting like St. Augustine, the Buddha, Meister Ecker in the same book that I'm telling people to pee more. Um, yeah. I forgot that I wrote that, but yeah, it's true. <laughs> There's something for everyone here, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, it's been great speaking with you, Brad. And if folks want to find out more about you and connect, uh, where can we send them? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Trevor and Angie. I really enjoyed this too. Um, so the best place to, to find out and learn more is the book itself. This conversation's great and it's you know the tip of the iceberg. So as you said, the book's called The Practice of Groundedness and you can get it anywhere that books are sold. You can get it on Audible if you prefer to listen. Then my website is just my name. So bradstalberg.com and there's um, some more of my writing and, and work lives there too. Yeah, we recommend everyone pick up a copy of the book. It would make a great Christmas gift for yourself or someone else even. (laughs) Buy it for someone else. I I think you really need this. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Never give a book to someone like that. Um, I've failed so many times. The way to do it is to say, (laughs) even if you are listening and you think you're the most grounded person ever, you don't need this. The way to give a gift book like that is to say, I read this and I found this super interesting and it helped me a lot. And you might want to check it out. That is so much better than giving Mm -hmm. someone a book like, you know, how to deal with anger. It's like, hey, (laughs) dad. I thought of you. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Like, I thought of you. Yeah, not not the way to do this. Uh, All right. An extra tip for everyone on the end of this episode. Going into the holiday season. (laughs) Thanks again, Brad. Yeah, thank you both for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Again, check out the book, The Practice of Groundedness. Angie, when I saw this book, I thought, this has your name written all over it. (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely was very eager to read it once I saw the title of it because it's something that I've been striving towards for the last few years. And it's not something that we ever arrive at. Just like with running, we never arrive. It's one of those things that's a journey. But there are ways that we can implement more mindfulness to become more grounded, to just add so much more quality to our everyday life. Does it work when you're out on a long run, just being present with the pain? I definitely think that mindfulness goes hand in hand with being a long distance runner. I think one thing that Brad talked about in the interview was how all of us are going to have all kinds of thoughts all the time. And that's just a normal part of being human. Even if you're an experienced long distance runner, you're still going to have thoughts like, oh, this is painful. Why am I doing this? I want to quit. Those things happen to all of us. And it's an important practice to be able to just recognize the thoughts and then let them go. We don't necessarily have to act on every thought and feeling that we have. Just simply acknowledge them and let them float away. Kind of like thinking about maybe your thoughts and your feelings being like leaves in a stream and just watch them drift by. Hmm. And as we all know, we can only put one foot in front of the other. So it really does us no good to get bogged down by past performance or worries about the future. Really, all we can control is that one present moment.
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. If we can help you in any way, reach out. we got a contact form on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. Love to help you get to the next level. So until next time, stay grounded. Remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.